our reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her, on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail sweeped down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's really wonderful to be with all of you, even in this, on this digital platform this morning. Let me pray for us real fast, and then we'll, we'll dive into our passage. Uh, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O, Lock, o Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So have you ever felt like you were being deceived? Have you ever had the suspicion that something malevolent 
was going on, something malicious was going on and it was being kept from you, that just behind the curtains, there, somebody was trying to manipulate you, exploit you, and it was all being kept from you. I think that's a really common feeling in our world right now. I mean, we live in the world of fake news and corporate cover-ups and sex scandals and Ponzi schemes and just a never-ending supply of conspiracy theories. So if you're the person that, and you've had that feeling, that suspicion that you're being deceived, our passage this morning would tell you you're right. In fact, it's way worse than you think. What if I told you our lives, all of our lives, were the staging ground of a terrible conflict, a horrific global war that has come to engulf everyone and everything, and that one side of this war doesn't want you to know about it. They will do everything in their power to keep you distracted and disengaged and otherwise blind to the truth that's right in front of you. Would you want to hear more? So if you can't tell, we are in a sermon series in the book of Revelation. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and it's a weird book. It's just filled with lots of strange and bizarre images, and there's just no end of differing opinions about what all those images mean. But as we have studied this book together, and as we've begun to walk through it, what we found is that Revelation isn't some mysterious code that you have to crack in order to unlock the mysteries of the future. Uh, actually, Revelation is just a picture book. It depicts reality for us. Uh, instead of telling us what's true, Revelation paints us a picture of what's true so that we can see things the way they truly are. And we need to see things the way they truly are, don't we? Um, now, we've come to chapter 12, and chapter 12 represents kind of a, a pivotal shift in the book. It's a scene change. Up until this point, John, the, the author, has been recounting this prophetic vision given to him by God when he was on the island of Patmos. And the way he's done that is with this two-step pattern of, I heard and then I saw. So I, I heard a voice say, and I turned and I saw, you know, and it's been that pattern. But now... There's a sign in heaven, right? So a real language shift there. And what does John see but not one image or one short little scene, but he sees this story begin to play out, this saga of the woman and the dragon and the child. And it doesn't end in chapter 12. It continues through chapters 13 and 14. So we're, we've reached something that's a little bit different. What, what's going on in these chapters? Well, the, probably the best way I've heard chapters 12 to 14 described is that they are cosmic history. Uh, God gives John a peek behind the curtain. He gets a, a God's eye view of what's been going on behind the scenes. And the very first thing that John sees is a cosmic war an epic struggle that has covered the entire earth, the kind of war where there is no neutral ground. 
So you and I, we need to see this war. We need to understand this war because we're already involved whether we like it or not. And if we choose to remain blind, we might find ourselves on the wrong side of the war. So, because y'all know how much we love the number three around here, I have three things that I would like for us to see about this war this morning. Number one, the start of the war. How did this war begin? Number two, we are going to see the weapons of warfare. How is the war being fought? And number three, our place. What role do we have to play in this war? Do you like that, note takers? I wrote them down for you, so now you just copy what I wrote. Start of the war, weapons of war, our place in the war. Okay, let's start off. Number one, how did this war begin? Well, this war begins the way all of the best wars do, with a beautiful woman. Sorry, that was terrible. I heard that coming out of my mouth, and I realized, you know, my note, it sounded good in my notes, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> the, the saga begins with this woman, this mysterious woman who's dressed in sunshine, standing on the moon, crowned with stars, kind of gives a whole new meaning to the phrase pregnancy glow. Who is she? Who is this mysterious woman? Well, probably wouldn't surprise you to find out there is some debate about who this woman is. Uh, but the most likely answer Really, the simplest answer is that she is a poetic depiction of God's people. She's a, she's a poetic picture of God's beloved people. Okay, now, something that we've seen all throughout this series is that most of the images found in the book of Revelation come from the Old Testament. Now, this is no exception because frequently in lots of different passages all over the Old Testament, God likens his people to a woman. He uses feminine terminology. But specifically, God, here in our passage, the woman is depicted as crying out in the pains of birth. Okay, she's in labor. Now, that's a very specific metaphor that's found in just a handful of Old Testament passages. Probably the most famous one is Isaiah chapter 66. That's one we read a lot at Christmas time. And the metaphor works like this, that the image of a woman in the pains of childbirth is a way of depicting God's people in need of rescue. They're, they're desperate. They're in distress. They are like, like a woman in labor, crying out for deliverance. Okay, so our saga begins with God's people in need of rescue. So what does God send to his people's aid? But a baby boy. God sends this male child. Now, the identity of the male child is far less ambiguous because it says here in verse 5 that he is, this one is to be, rule with a rod of iron over the nations, and then he's caught up to God and his throne. Now, that, this is a very clear reference to the Lord Jesus, right? The rod of iron is a reference to Psalm 2, which is a very famous psalm about the Messiah, God's anointed king that will usher in an eternal reign of perfect peace and justice and shalom, where everything everywhere works the way it's supposed to, right? And him being caught up to God in his throne is a reference to the, the Lord Jesus ascending to heaven, okay? So God's people are in distress. God sends his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, into the world in order to rescue them. Now, this is the point where the conflict begins, the, the promise and the coming of this Messiah elicits resistance from the dragon. Now, 
just like the male child, the identity of the dragon is not ambiguous. John actually names him. It's Satan, the devil. Now, I don't know where you are and how that strikes you, how you feel when I say the devil. You know, maybe some of us came from a tradition or a family where the devil was talked about a lot, maybe too much. He was overemphasized all the time. Or maybe some of us are skeptics. You know, maybe some of us kind of like the idea of an actual literal Satan feels kind of ridiculous. Um, and if you're, if you're, if that's you, and you're here and you're, you're skeptical, two things. One, I'm really glad you're here. Thank you for just even taking the time to consider these things. Okay, but number two, I, I would invite you to just keep an open mind. I'm not going to convince you in one sermon. Just keep op an open mind to the possibility that there really is a supernatural, malevolent being at work in the world who wants to keep you away from God. Just be open to that possibility. So there's a lot of misinformation out, of, out there, a lot of fake news about Satan. So let's, let's figure out what does God's word actually say about who Satan is? Well, thankfully for us, our passage tells us everything we need to know, or pretty much. So you'll notice Satan is depicted as being a red dragon. Now, that's telling, because remember what we've seen is in Revelation is largely symbolic. So he doesn't appear here as a red dragon because Satan is an actual fire-breathing dragon. But in the ancient world, dragons were always a symbol of chaos, of destruction and ruin. Whenever dragons show up in the ancient myths, stuff just starts falling apart. Okay. Now, this dragon, he sweeps a third of the stars out of heaven with his tail. Now, there's a couple of different ways we could interpret that that are all perfectly legitimate. Um, but the basic idea is this. It's the dragon disordering God's created order. It's him wrecking creation. Now, what's more, the dragon has seven heads. And if you've been with us, you know seven is a symbolic number representing wholeness, completeness. It's God's number, right? He creates everything in seven days. But here the dragon is appropriating God's number. And what's more, he appropriates God's crown. He has seven diadems or crowns, which is a symbol, again, of authority, power, it's as if the dragon is kind of presenting himself as a rival king, a rival creator. But he can't actually be a rival creator because he's not, the equal to, he's not equal to God. There's God, and then there's everything that's created. And so Satan is in the everything that was created category. And we see that in our passage, actually, because you'll notice Satan never attacks God. He fights with Michael. The archangel, right? And tradition says that Satan at one time was an angel, God's right-hand lieutenant angel, and he rebelled against God, and now Michael has taken his place. So he fights with another angel, but he never fights God. He, you never see Satan and God going head-to-head -head because they're not equals. Satan has no power over God. So Satan has to settle for attacking God's stuff, his people, and his creation. So the picture is, when, when taken all together, we see the, this picture. Satan, he's the supernatural, angelic being who is the Satan. That's a word that means enemy, adversary, and he hates God. 
and he hates God's authority and he hates God's way of doing things and he doesn't want God on the throne. He wants to be the one on the throne. And so because he does, he's not equal to God and doesn't have any power over God, he's gonna do everything in his power to wreck God's creation and attack God's beloved woman, his people. So of course, when God sends his only begotten son into the world to rescue his people who are in distress, Satan will not stand by and let that happen. So he sets himself up to devour the male child. Now, every commentator I read on this passage, every single one pointed to this passage and said, this is a reference to the historical event of King Herod. You guys remember wicked King Herod from Sunday school, from Christmas time, right? He was the king over Israel at the time, it, you know, of the Christmas story. And he orders every male child in the entire region of Galilee, two years old and under, to be murdered. But Joseph and Mary and Jesus escaped to, to Egypt, right? When, I, when Carrie read our passage earlier, how many of you were thinking, oh, this is the Christmas story? No? Yeah. Well, it is. You see, guys, the reason is that the night that Jesus was born, despite what the carols say, was not a silent night. It was a declaration of war. Our God went to war in order to rescue us. Do you remember, again, Christmas time story, when the angels appeared to the shepherds on the hillside? Remember the first angel shows up and says, you know, he announces the birth of the Lord Jesus. But then what does it say? Luke chapter 2. It says that then there suddenly appeared there an with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host. Notice it doesn't say a multitude of heavenly choir, a multitude of, the, of heavenly flash mob, or even just a multitude. Heavenly host. That word host is a military term. God sent an army to that hillside. Our God was so bent on rescuing us, he started a war. How did this war begin? It began when we were in distress. Our God so loved us that he starts a war by sending his rescue mission, the Lord Jesus, into the world. Now, here's the thing. The war starts, and then our saga, it kind of skips over the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and goes straight to his ascension, right? And that's where Jesus is now right? That he rises from the dead. He appears for several weeks. He appears to people, and then he ascends to heaven. And right now, at this very moment, Jesus of Nazareth, the flesh and blood, skin and bones man, the God man, is in the very throne room of God, and we're waiting for his return. But here's the thing. That ascension, that clenched the victory. Satan was thrown down from heaven. But the war's not over. Even though the victory is won, success is, has been secured, the fighting continues, and Satan's hacked off, and he's coming after us. So we need to know how this war is being fought. We need to know the weapons being used against us and the weapons we have at our disposal. So I want to see two sets of weapons this morning. I want to see Satan's weapons and our weapons. We're going to fill in those blanks. Don't worry, note takers. Okay, so first of all, Satan's Weapons. What, what weapon does Satan have? Well, Satan really only has one fundamental weapon. I mean, he can do 
gosh, he can do all kinds of stuff. He can wreak havoc in your life and destruction in the world. He has been behind all kinds of different things. But in the middle of all of it, in fact, really behind everything he does, there's this weapon that's the driving force of whatever he's doing. It's always in the mix. And it's really fundamental to who Satan is. What is it? Well, what does our passage say? It says, it calls him in chapters 9 and 10, the deceiver of the whole world and the accuser of our brothers. Satan's fundamental weapon are his lies and accusations. Now you might say, well, those are two different things. They're like two edges of the same sword. They always go together. They always work together. Think of it. How did Satan get Adam and Eve to rebel against God? to utterly betray him by doing the one thing that he asked them not to do. He lies to them and accuses God. And from that day until this day, Satan has been weaving a tapestry of lies and accusations all over the world. And he's got something for everybody. He'll tell you lies and accusations about God. He'll tell you lies and accusations about yourself, about other people. He'll, he's got lies and accusations about the church and about the world we live in. And it just goes on and on and on. We could do a whole series on all of Satan's different tactics and plots. And, but we're going to focus on one this morning because our passage focuses in on one very specific deception that Satan loves and it's, he's really good at it. And it works really well. Where do we see this deception? Well, when, when Carrie read our passage this morning, I, you know, I'm sure a lot of you picked up that it feels very mythic. It reads like an ancient myth and a very strange myth at that, right? Well, to the original audience of the book of Revelation, to the Christians in the first century, they too would have recognized this sounds like a myth, but it would not have sound strange to them. Because this story, the way it plays out, bears a striking similarity to another story, one that was very well known in the ancient world, and that is the myth of Apollo. And the, the, the myth goes like this. There's Zeus, the king god, and he has an affair with the goddess Leto, and she becomes pregnant with twin boys, Apollo and his brother. And of course, Hera, Zeus's wife, she finds out and she is livid. And so she summons Python, the giant snake monster, to seek out Leto and her boys and to devour them. But pity is taken upon Leto and she's whisked away to a secret island where she is allowed to give birth in safety. And then her son Apollo grows up to be a mighty warrior and he hunts down and he slays Python. Aha! Now, why in the world would God fashion this prophetic vision after that ancient myth? Well, the reason is Emperor Domitian. You guys remember him? There he is. Domitian, we met him in chapter four. Domitian was the Roman emperor at this time in history. He was also the very first Roman emperor to begin empire-wide, systematic, crackdown persecution on Christians. And he loved Apollo. Ooh, he loved Apollo. He would actually dress up as Apollo when he gave speeches. He had pictures done of himself as Apollo. And he used the Apollo myth as propaganda. 
He was the God Apollo come to earth and he had single-handedly slain the monster of chaos. He was the Lord and savior of Rome. And you might be, wait, wait, who's the monster of chaos? Well, that would be the enemies of Rome, those who threaten her peace and stability. But here in Revelation, God gives John a peek behind the curtain and us. And what do we see? It's not Apollo who slays the monster. And Domitian is certainly not the savior because there is only one Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. But Domitian does show up in our passage. Did you notice him? Did you catch him? He shows up. The dragon is depicted as having 10 horns. What's that boy talking about? Well, those 10 horns are a reference to Daniel chapter 7. A little over 400 years before the book of Revelation was written, God gives the prophet Daniel another, a different vision. And in that vision, he sees various things, but one of them is this beast that has 10 horns. Now that beast represents the Roman Empire. And the 10 horns represent a different ruler over the Roman Empire. What's God saying? God's saying, not only is Domitian not the savior, he's a horn on the dragon. He's a tool of Satan. You see, friends, Satan's favorite deception is the deception of false messiahs, alternative saviors. And it works like this. When chaos threatens our lives, and boy, we feel the chaos right now, don't we? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Australia was on fire. And then we almost went to war with Iran when, you know, like they dropped bomb on us, we dropped a bomb on them. And then COVID-19, the entire world shuts down for months on end. And the economy is now a giant question mark. And in the middle of that pandemic, the racial tension in our country explodes with the murder of George Floyd. So there have been riots and protests and people getting tear gassed and more murders. And oh, by the way, it's an election year. And I'm sure we all have examples of chaos in our own lives. When chaos threatens us and when we, it begins to overwhelm us, it's at that moment. Satan loves to slither up and he whispers accusations in our ears. You know whose fault this is, don't you? It's their fault. It's them, those left-wing progressive with their freedom-hating Black Lives Matter feminist gay agenda. It's their fault. It's those racist, right-wing fundamentalists who cling to our misogynistic past and who prevent everybody else from having any control. It's their fault. It's the media and their fake news and their lies. It's those dirty, parasitic criminal immigrants who come in here with their guns and their drugs and who ruin everything. It's the greedy corporate 1% who just keep getting richer while the rest of us get poor. It's their fault. It's those snowflake millennials. Okay, Boomer, we know whose fault it really is. And once... Satan has your gaze fixed on the quote-unquote source of the problem, it's right then that he will raise up for you a false messiah, 
an alternative savior. Yeah, those people, they're the problem, but don't worry. We're going to make America great again. Or don't worry, we're going to feel the burn. Or don't worry, if you invest in cryptocurrencies and, and gold, it will protect your wealth from the deep state agenda. Or, you know, if you use a combination of essential oils and yoga, you can wear off any kind of disease. Right. The list goes on and on. It, it could be a politician. It could be a program. It could be a party. It could be a social movement. It could be a consumer product. It could just be good old-fashioned American work ethic. Whatever it is, whatever it's an ideology, a person, a program, whatever, it comes and it, it makes a promise. It makes a promise that if you vote for me, if you tow the party line, if you buy this product, if you get on board with this program, chaos will be kept away. But it never works. Never completely. It always falls short of coming, fulfilling that promise. And we've fallen for this lie over and over and over again. History bears this out. Why are we so susceptible to this lie? Because it's so close to the truth. It, do we have political problems in our world? Yes, lots of them. And so, of course, we reach for a politician to save us. Do we have economic problems in our world? You bet your bottom dollar we do. So we try to reach for an economic plan. Do we have social, cultural, racial problems in our world? Yes, we really, really do. And so we reach for movements and ideologies and organizations and institutions to rescue us. But it never works because what's up underneath the problems? There's a problem underneath the problems. Us. Why are governments notoriously corrupt and oppressive and tyrannical? Because oppression and tyranny and exploitation find their source in the human heart. Why is that history is filled with economies that have exploited certain groups? Because greed and corruption find their source in the human heart. Why is it that whatever technological thing that we create to fix the problem just creates two more problems somewhere else? Because the problem isn't outside of us. The problem exists inside of us. As a famous author once said, the dividing line between good and evil runs through every human heart. The Bible calls it sin. It's this idea that and just part of the human condition is that we're bent. We're bent towards being selfish, towards bending the truth to our own ends, to wanting to live life our way, to ignoring God. And it's poisoned everything. And so whenever we come up with a solution, inevitably, we bring the problem to the solution to the, we bring, I'm going to get this. We bring the problem that we're trying to solve to our solution. Told you I get it. We're the problem. We don't just need rescue from the chaos out there in the world. We need to be rescued from ourselves. Hallelujah. I'm going to need a hallelujah from somebody in my crew here. There it is. Hallelujah. When we were in need of rescue, our God sent a rescue mission. 
when there was no way out for us that we could create ourselves, our God made a way through the very body and blood of his son. Which brings me to our weapon. Now, Paul talks about our spiritual weapons in Ephesians 6, but really, just like Satan, we've got one fundamental weapon, one that powers all the others. What is it? What is it that throws Satan down? Was it our good works? Was it our good church attendance? Well, I, I attended church all throughout COVID-19. Was it our good Bible reading? Was it our fervent prayers? Was it any of that thing? No. What conquered Satan? The blood of the lamb. It's the blood. You see, friends, there is only one weapon, one weapon in the entire universe that is so potent, so powerful, it has the ability to eradicate the sin in the world without eradicating us, the carriers of that sin. It is the only thing powerful enough to save us from us. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, but Matt, it also says by the word of their testimony. What about that? Isn't that a weapon too? L let me say it like this. If the blood is the weapon, our prophetic witness in the world, our testimony to the efficacy of the blood, to the truth of the blood, that's us picking up the sword. Now, Eric talked last week about our witness in the world. So if you weren't here, please go back and listen to that sermon online. But our weapon is the blood. How did this war begin? This war began when we were in distress. Our God was so committed to rescuing us that he went to war on our behalf. What are the weapons of this war? Satan's weapons are his lies and accusations and all the alternative saviors that he presents to us. But there are no alternative saviors because there's only one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which and his blood shed for us on the cross is our one and true weapon. Now, I realize we're getting close to the end here. You guys are getting tired. Thank you for sticking with me. We've got one more point, our place, and I promise it's going to be quick. So the victory has been won. Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection on the cross, he conquered Satan. But the war is not over yet. It's like D-Day, right? You remember that from history? The, the victory's won, but now we're waiting for the war to officially be over. So how does our, what does that mean for us now? What do we do with that? Well, what does our saga say? All right, our place in the war is we wait and trust. Now, where do we see that? Well, look at our, if you look at our passage, um, it says that, okay, Satan's been thrown down. He comes after the woman, but she's given the wings of the great eagle, and she flies into the wilderness. Does that sound familiar? It should. If you're, if you're a member here, it should be familiar because a couple years ago, we studied the book of Exodus. And you remember Exodus chapter 19, it's God said he rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai and he makes a covenant with them. He, he, like, he marries his people at the mountain. And what does he say? He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, friends, for 2,000 years, Christians have looked at Israel's time in the wilderness and said, that is the Christian life. Because what, what was it like for them? They weren't slaves anymore. They were free. They had been rescued, but they weren't in the promised land yet. They were still waiting on the fulfillment of God's promises. 
For 40 years, they had to wait. And same with us. If you're in Christ, if his blood covers you, if his Holy Spirit is inside of you, you're saved. You're free. You are finally and forever his. But the war isn't over yet. And we're waiting on the fulfillment of all the promises. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and bring the new heavens and new earth. And if you don't know what that is, stick around for this rest of the series because it will come at the end. Okay? We're in the time between. The already and the not yet. We're in the wilderness. And there's a lot of application about what it means that we are in the wilderness and if you weren't here for the Exodus series, go back and listen to it. There's a lot of wonderful stuff there. But if I was going to summarize, what does it mean to be in the wilderness? We wait and we trust. It's the place where God shapes us into the kind of people he wants us to be. Kind of like marriage counseling. It's hard. It's not comfortable. But it leads to a deeper, richer relationship. And our role in that time in that testing in that you know that in the wilderness is we wait and trust now i want to say real quick waiting and trusting in biblical terms are not passive activities it's not just sitting there although sometimes god does tell us to to sit but a lot of times it's my people my loved ones i want you to go do this thing i want you to obey me it's going to be hard it's going to be uncomfortable and you're going to have to wait for me to come through for you on the other side of it, but I want you to trust me. Now, we're going to talk a, a lot here. We do talk a lot here at Central Western Church about what does it actually look like for us, the people of God, to actively wait and to trust. But let me give one application that I think really applies to what we've been talking about this morning. When chaos threatens your life, when you feel overwhelmed by the world and everything happening in your life and in the media and all of it, What's your go-to? Do, do you jump on the bandwagon of criticism and accusations? Do you start pointing fingers? Do you start desperately scrambling to find an all, a solution to the problem, trying to find that alternative savior that's going to deal with everything, make, make it all go away? Or do you pray? And if you pray, do you plead the most powerful weapon at our disposal on your behalf and on the behalf of others? Look, I'm going to get real candid right now. Some of us in our church do not like Donald Trump. Not everybody, but a lot of us don't. And there's good reasons for that. Okay? But do you pray for him? Do you pray for that boss you don't like? Do you pray for people that are out there, that toxic family member? I'm not saying agree with them. I'm not saying get on board with their agenda. I'm saying, do you pray for them? Do you plead the blood of Jesus on their behalf? And trust, instead of looking for the alternative savior to replace them, do you trust that God can actually work good through them and can actually work good in their life too? Are we willing to trust God and to pray for the leaders that we have instead of scrambling, looking for the leaders we think will actually save us. How did this war start? This war started when we were in distress and God sent a rescue mission. And he went to war on our behalf. 
What are the weapons of this war? Satan's weapons are his lies and accusations and all the alternative saviors he offers up. But there's only one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And his blood is our primary weapon. So what is our place in this war? Well, we're in the wilderness. So we wait and we actively trust. Because here's the thing, guys. Our God started this war. He's the one that provides the the weapons. And he's the one that's going to finish it. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you were so committed to us that you sent the most precious thing in the universe to you in order to die for us, to get us back. Thank you that you are far more powerful than Satan and that he has no lie, he has no accusation, he has no weapon against us that isn't laid flat by your blood, Lord Jesus. Make us people that are not afraid, that are not shy, that are boldly claiming and pleading your blood, Lord Jesus, over ourselves, over our world, over our city, over one another, that we would be as gracious with our asking of your blood, Lord Jesus, as you were in giving it. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.